1: Hey, and welcome to Country Breakfast, my name's Clint Jasper. We eat a lot less beef than we once used to. Chicken is Australia's favourite meat by a long shot. On the show this week we're taking a look at our increasingly discerning palates and shopping habits when we do decide to put some beef on the menu.
2: People steer from their traditional cuts now they're going for more natural products which is predominantly grass-fed lawns, you know, things that are you know, in the free air, they're not locked up and confined in feedlots and things like that, they're out in the open paddocks, people seem to really like that sort of thing.
1: Before we get there though, Serena Lock is here to run us through this week's rural news highlights. Good morning, Serena. Very good morning to you, Clint. Hey, let's take a look at the global COVID crisis first up. Australia's live export industry is getting pretty worried about what's going on in Indonesia at the moment. Indonesia has pretty much overtaken India and Brazil as the new epicentre of the coronavirus pandemic.
3: Yes, it's really very sad. So in recent days, Indonesia's recorded a record 54,000 new COVID cases and 1,200 deaths in a single day. That's what's reported really. Um, And the Australian Livestock Exporters Council says Australian cattle exports are down almost 30% on the same time last year. So that'll be affecting beef prices in Indonesia and food security as well. There are also coinciding with this investigations into a complaint that seven abattoirs were breaching the animal welfare standards. So that aside, it's easier for Indonesia's office workers to stay home. But not those feeding cattle and working in abattoirs and markets. And Australian Troy Setter, who's the CEO of Consolidated Pastoral Company, which owns two feedlots in Lampung and Medan, says they have 600 staff, some are working offsite, some have contracted COVID and many are getting their vaccinations. He said it's a very difficult time.
4: You know this week is is korban or or Eid, where most of the Muslim population come together and and celebrate and and uh, and sacrifice uh, you know, an animal and and give to the poor and and that's been really you know really difficult uh, this this year for for everyone to to ha- have to try and go into some sort of lockdown.
1: Back home, and Australia's border restrictions have tightened yet again this week. And it makes farming and running agriculture businesses very difficult when that happens.
3: Yes, it does. And there's plenty that straddle borders. So just taking one example, in the case of South Australia's border closure with Victoria, a farming couple in the southwest of Victoria have shut down their agricultural spraying business altogether. Sue and Mark Harrison live three kilometres east of the border in Nelson. They've been really frustrated with the South Australian government's approach to lockdown and lockouts for over a year now. Ms Carrison was very frustrated by the COVID test requirements and felt they were actually
5: counterproductive. Mark to go over. He has to get three tests in the next fortnight. So yesterday he spent three hours getting a test. Now, my question today is, with South Australia going into lockdown, if you're in Mount Gambia and you, you're feeling sick and you go to get tested, which is what you should do, What do you do you go down there you see this massive lineup because trucks have to be tested truckies have to be tested every two days those poor buggers i feel sorry sorry for them i would imagine most people would go stuff this i'm not lining up for three hours i'll just go home
1: let's talk about climate change now germany's leadership says time is running out to take action after those devastating floods this week
3: Yeah, parts of Germany received the average monthly rain in just two days. And the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, has described the flooding that has devastated parts of Europe as terrifying. And the death toll across the region of Germany, at least, um, hit uh, 180 plus. It's destroyed fruit and vegetable crops across Belgium and uh, Germany. Grain crops will be downgraded and millions of people face a massive clean-up effort. European leaders have joined the Chancellor Merkel to blame climate change. We have to hurry. We have to get faster in our fight against climate change. And I believe that the European Union is working on just that. The fact that we will be the first continents to be carbon neutral by the middle of the century is something that matters.
1: Some of those scenes in Belgium as well with the floods are pretty horrific and of course in China as well, huge volumes of water moving through some of those cities with flooding and then the fires and the drought in America, so it's all going on at the moment, but back at home feral pigs are contributing to global warming, more than just damaging the soil and the crops, they're also pumping emissions into the atmosphere.
3: Yeah, so this is one more reason to control our population of feral pigs. The University of Queensland has found that when the feral pigs root up the soil, they release greenhouse gases. So I think carbon monoxide and methane just goes into the atmosphere. Feral pigs are releasing about 4.9 million metric tons of carbon dioxide across the globe annually, the same as over a million cars. Now, the University of Queensland's Dr. Christopher O'Brien says Australia and New Zealand is accounting for about 60% of that.
1: For Oceania, it's about the size of Israel, if you are to think about the actual land area that's being disturbed. So obviously that disturbance causes uh, carbon emissions through the loss of of, CO2. If we were to look at this in terms of the, say, the number of cars in Australia, it would be about the equivalent of 650,000 cars. And and that's about the same amount from uh, all the cars that are registered in Tasmania and uh, Northern Territory combined. Now, we know farms are the most dangerous workplaces in Australia, and it's actually Farm Safety Week. So one farmer's done something very different to remind everyone to take care at work.
3: Yeah, so Alex Thomas farms in Victoria and uh, she's asked people on Twitter to share their stories and lessons from their farm accidents. Some are pretty horrific in the thread, which is called plant a seed for safety. And Ms Thomas says it's a good place for people to share their real life stories. Uh, it's a grassroots movement, you'd like to say, uh, and not just hear messages from above.
6: There was, in my mind, a lot of upper extremity injuries, hands, fingers, forearms, but there was also... Motorbike incidents, um, someone really severely affected by an explosion and
7: one woman getting kicked by a bull. Yeah, lots and lots of learnings in there and certainly a commendable amount of willingness to
6: share.
1: Well, it's good to see people sharing tips to stay safe on farms, especially when you think about all the tools and machinery people operate.
3: Yeah, that's right. And so tractors, chainsaws, large animals, they're all pretty hazardous, especially if you're tired or not careful. So in fact, it's a particularly dangerous place for kids. Approximately 15 children are killed on Australian farms each year. That's figures out of Ag Health Australia. One dairy farmer had this advice in Farm Safety Week, which he thought resonated across all farms.
8: With my experience, I believe uh, you probably, your best safety tip's going to be helmets on motorbikes or quad bikes, uh, especially when you're just going for a very short trip or just ducking around the corner to the dairy. uh, Always have that helmet available um, and on your head at at every time. You've just got to have that protection. Everyone needs to keep themselves safe uh, safe and go home in the same way you started every day.
1: I know when I was a kid on the farm, helmets were Sometimes things. So <laughs> there was some pretty hairy incidents. So good to see that attitude, attitude shift. Let's switch to wine now. Exports of wine to the United Kingdom have reached their highest level in a decade.
3: Yeah, wine Australia says exports to the UK rose by 23% in value and 16% in volume, but that wasn't enough to offset 33% drop in value to China. So overall, wine exports over the last 12 months have declined by 10% uh, compared to the previous financial year. And Wine Australia's General Manager for Corporate Affairs and Regulation, Rachel Triggs, explains.
7: The growth in exports to the UK was much stronger in the first half of the year due to the surge in wine sales in the in the off trade because of the COVID nineteen related shutdowns um, of the on trade, as well as some exporters sending wine into market ahead of Brexit because they were concerned about the um, the red tape that they might might endure after Brexit. So exports to the UK increased by forty percent to two hundred and fifty five million uh, in the first half of the financial year, and by eight percent to two hundred and eighteen million in the second half. So that's that's really positive and it is indicative of the fact that exporters are starting to find other markets.
1: We have all taken to online shopping, but it's stretched as far as farm machinery as well.
3: Yeah, so everyone loves a good clearance sale, walking around the bric-a-brac of a farm and all its valuable machinery. But even that's gone online during the pandemic. Auction Plus Chief Economist Tim McRae says while a huge variety of animals sold on the platform from alpacas to camels and working dogs, there were also 4.4 million sheep and over 800,000 head of cattle. But machinery and clearance sales all went online and it was a big growth area.
9: They really enjoy having the sale online. It gives them a lot more time to browse the, uh, the portfolio of what's available, if you like. And, um, yeah, we've seen a 400% growth in the last 12 months. So an interesting, interesting development, certainly one that, um, you know, the business was looking to grow that area, but probably not grow it that soon.
1: Now, while we're all in lockdown and looking for amazing food to eat, you can't really go past mushrooms. And one mushroom farmer who normally supplies restaurants in regional New South Wales has just won a gold medal.
3: Yeah, this is nice news for Stu Hartley. He owns Mother Fungus uh, and grows gourmet mushrooms out of his shed in Old Bar, New South Wales' mid-north coast. And Mother Fungus has just won the gold medal in the Delicious Produce Award judged by top
10: chefs. In our category, which is from the Earth category, there was basically 20 gold medals across Australia. Of those 20 medals, there's things like honey, microgreens, potatoes. So anything that's grown is in our category. What that means is any of those products that have got a gold medal would sit quite happily in any top restaurant in Australia. So that's that's a bit of a buzz for us to be in in that class.
3: And frankly, mushrooms are cheaper than (laughs) beef anyway. So go mushrooms this weekend. Serena Locke, thank you so
1: much for that wrap of Rural News. Thanks, Clint. This week, we're getting a taste of life on the road when we meet some of the workers following the sun on the show circuit. They're bringing their amusement rides and food stalls to country communities up and down the coast. We'll visit a farm where the owners have downsized, not by acreage, but by the size of their livestock. They're breeding miniature varieties of goats, cows, pigs, and donkeys. It's very cute. And we'll meet students who are getting a practical lesson in the life cycle of native plants and helping to rehabilitate their local environment collecting seeds and growing them into saplings to be replanted on a farmer's bushfire affected property.
8: It does feel like a little bit of a magic trick when you take what looks like a you know a seed the size of a you know grain of pepper and then here we are maybe six months later and they're growing into healthy trees and and it'll be really exciting to monitor that over the years to come and to see them grow up into healthy trees and make a difference to the environment here
1: pretty amazing that magic of nature will meet the teacher and the students involved in that project to green bushfire blackened land that is coming up first today we're visiting a remote school where two new recruits are inspiring young learners
11: well me growing up personally i didn't think that attendance was important and i didn't know how important it was until i've started working in the school if you miss at least a few days a week, like everything adds up. And then after a while, all those days could add up to like a full year of school that you've missed. Now I understand how important it is and why the kids need to come to school every single day. While Tali
0: Blissard may not have always appreciated the importance of school attendance, she's now inspiring the next generation of Aboriginal students to engage with their own education. Along with her twin sister Shauna, Tali is working at Mount Margaret Remote Community School in Western Australia's Goldfields region. The principal of the school is Deb Lamont. She says while the school's 19 students from kindy to year six are all Aboriginal, until the twins started working here, it had been 18 months since there were Aboriginal staff in the classrooms. Tali and Shauna came in at the end of last year. Other than the
7: cleaner, we had no Aboriginal staff, and we put them on to support with the teachers to give the students a bit more of a voice in their culture and their identity and to have someone as a role model for the kids in the school. When one of them started, then the other one came in and started as well and they they just blossomed within a couple of weeks. They were both working so well with the kids and now we've contracted them full time as AIOs.
0: Hello, I'm Madison Snow. I've travelled here to Mount Margaret, which was established as a mission where stolen generations were taken from 1921 up until the 1970s. Surrounded by unsealed red dirt roads and mine sites, Mount Margaret is about a 10-hour drive northeast from WA's capital, Perth. The closest shop, hospital and other essential services are in Laverton, a 32-kilometre drive southwest of here. Amongst the humble weatherboard and asbestos homes are remnants of the old mission. A playground sits in the middle of town, and across the road is the Wurrupunda Foundation. But the real heart of it all is the school.
11: I think it's good, because it's really small, you know, and then most of the kids, like, everyone walks to school, and when they come to school everyone's happy, and then after school the kids are allowed to still play in the school, like after school hours, so They're always here, hanging around, smiling. It makes me feel happy, just seeing them happy, and most of the stuff they say makes me happy, makes me laugh. (laughs) Tali spends most of her time in the
0: office and occasionally helps with the kids, while Shauna is helping out with the younger kids on a full-time basis.
11: With us being at the school, they're really comfortable to come up to us and talk to us if they have any problems or anything they want to talk about, they can come up to us and then, like, Also, with the helping translate to the teachers what the kids are saying, you know, (laughs) yeah, so that the teachers know, like, because most of the kids, they do say Aboriginal words, you know, for like, if they want to go get a drink or go to the toilet, and it's good for Shauna to be in the class as well, so that if the kid's like saying something in our language, she can tell the teacher what they're trying to say. Shauna has been focused
0: on nourishing culture in the classrooms, especially through language. She says kids respond better to learning when they're able to express themselves freely. They'll say something and
11: sometimes Colleen, like she wouldn't understand like what they're saying. So like I'll ask them what they're saying and like I'd understand them and then I'll tell Colleen so that we know what they want and what they need. They feel free in that class. The twins come from
0: a family of educators, including their older sister. Shauna said it was her auntie Tanya Tucker, a teacher at East Kalgoorlie Primary School, who sparked her interest in education.
11: She inspired me to help kids and help them learn. She teaches language. I think that's really good so that the kids know about their culture and how to speak their language so that Aboriginal kids can feel comfortable, like going to school too. Snakes.
7: snakes? I don't know what those
11: snakes are called. Miss Lamont says
0: since Shauna started working in the classroom, the children find it easier to connect with the curriculum.
7: A lot of it is just putting what they're doing in the classroom into a perspective that they can take home, which is something that non-Indigenous teachers don't usually get without a lot of experience. So. Having her there to make that transformation from school to home just cements the learning with the kids so much easier.
0: She says the twins have made a huge difference to the kids' productivity and enthusiasm for learning.
7: They've given the kids a lot more self-assurance. The students respond really well to the girls. They're able to see what it's like to achieve. The kids here have got something to look forward to. They've got something to aspire to. They're able to connect with what school means to the rest of your life and not just because, you know, someone said we have to come to school. There's now a want to learn. The kids actually want to learn to be like Shauna and Tali. A kiss with a kiss. Wonderful.
11: (laughs) The whole lot of them have improved and we've seen the change since last year and then this year. It might just be just a little bit of a change, but we noticed it. she comes and tells me all the time, like, this kid can count to this much, when last year they couldn't count to there, you know, and then just all sorts of little stuff of their improvement. And we get excited for all the little improvements and everything. (laughs) It's
8: just been about getting students connected with their um, natural environment and the native vegetation that we have here on the Eyre Peninsula. (laughs) On South Australia's Eyre Peninsula, teacher Lisa
12: Fox's students have been getting a hands-on lesson in the life cycle of native trees.
8: So it started as a seed collecting venture, so we were really fortunate to work with Simon Bay from Greening Australia. We went to a local property, learnt about the species that grow there and learnt how to harvest um, the seeds from the gum nuts. Those gum nuts then came back to the school, they were dried out and then used as part of a tree seedling growing program that we were fortunate enough to have the space here at school to propagate um, them into healthy little tree seedlings. It was a really lovely opportunity to get kids out of the classroom, um, working with their teachers and getting their hands dirty.
12: Hello, I'm Jodie Hamilton. I'm here at St. Joseph's School in Port Lincoln, where some of those healthy little trees, grown from seeds collected by students, are ready to be planted.
13: That's will put it over just so that we've got more. They'll
12: help replace trees that were lost on a local farmer's property in bushfires back in 2005. Teacher Lisa Fox says for some of her students watching the tree grow from a tiny seed has been a big revelation.
8: It does feel like a little bit of a magic trick when you take what looks like a you know a seed the size of a, you know, grain of pepper and then here we are maybe six months later and they're growing into healthy trees and and it will be really exciting to monitor that over the years to come and to see them grow up into healthy trees and make a difference to the environment here.
12: She hopes the program can continue for years to come, with the students taking a lead role in helping the local ecology.
8: So what we'd hope is that this can be a program that we run yearly and I guess that's working with the natural seasonal changes as well so that's another sort of layer of learning for the kids to start to understand and appreciate the difference between the seasons and and how that works with nature. I think it's been really nice to see kids just connect with nature, it's such a simple thing um, and I think it's something that it doesn't really matter you know, where your interests are. I think sometimes in school, kids get used to, I guess, aligning themselves with liking some subjects better than others, but I think any time you start to deal with the environment and nature, it's something they can all tap into. Um, it's something that they all can experience without it needing to be a test or graded. It's just a lovely thing to get kids outside, um, get them connecting with their environment. And I guess it's really awesome to see kids realise they can make a difference and how awesome if they become, you know, the, the youth of today are the leaders of tomorrow, so if they all know how to plant a tree and grow a tree and they, they can, you know, pass that knowledge on to their the next generation. Henry
12: Jenkins is one of the students here at St Joseph's who has become passionate about the program known as, from little things, big things grow. Well
14: I love nature and being in it and trees and everything and I reckon it's really cool like not being like in the classroom and everything Um, having to come out here and do some um, really fun nature stuff, I reckon that's cool
12: And what sort of plants have you got here?
14: Um, We've got uh, quite a lot of gums, and we've got some she-oak, some umbrella um, wattle and we've got Red gum, blue gum, creek gums. Yeah, we've got um, we've got quite a lot. Would you recommend this to other people? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's been awesome. It's been such a great experience.
12: And what sort of feeling does it give you? It
14: gives me a feeling of like putting everything back together again. Like when the fires came through, there was like a bit of um, like bare spots where the fire had got to. And um, I reckon it makes everyone just feel really good about themselves that they're kind of uh, piecing back the vegetation, putting it back together again. So yeah, it gives you that really nice feeling.
12: Farmer John Cook's home was saved during the 2005 bushfire, but he lost more than 500 sheep, many of his sheds and of course many trees around his property. He says it is nice to see the students wanting to be so involved in replanting trees in the local area.
9: Yes, I was approached last year by Kim Rowe from St Joe's and they are looking for somewhere close to Lincoln where they could have a project of collecting seeds, propagating the trees, keeping the trees and um, getting them to a stage and keeping the, the, them nice and clean and then planting them in an area and then they can monitor the, monitor their growth and, and the actual care of the area where they're going to go. And he came out I said, well, come out and have a look. I'm not sure of where we could go, but we might find something that's suitable. And anyhow, I took him around to this area where we we're going to go. It's only a narrow area. It would only be 20 metres wide by about well, 150 metres long. And he said, perfect. It's just what we want. So I said, go for it. And today's the day they're coming out to put them in. We're going to start all over again in that little area. So I'm looking forward to it for them. And uh, so that they can come out and they can come and go as they please and monitor it as part of their study. So that it'll be it'll be great for them to get out of the classroom uh, and do something like this. And like, so we're only 15 k's from town and uh, they can do it at their leisure. And by planting, planting the trees, you're putting you're protecting the soil, you're providing shelter for your livestock, and also you're adding beauty to, to the, the countryside. I mean, you've got to have cultivation for crops and that, but it's finding that balance, of finding an area that you, you want to plant trees and beautify, and, and an area that you can get production off of. This is what, this is what it's all about.
1: Farmer John Cook from Port Lincoln on South Australia's Air Peninsula, he spoke to reporter Jodie Hamilton. Before that, reporter Madison Snow took us to the remote community of Mount Margaret in Western Australia's Goldfields region. You can see more on both those stories on the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash rn. I'm Clint Jasper with you for Country Breakfast here on RN. Still to come, we'll head along to Sideshow Ellie to meet some of the workers behind the amusement rides and food stalls, and we'll visit a farm where the animals are on the small side.
15: Well, I had a childcare centre up further up the road and I started that in 1992. Did that for about 11 years and then decided as we got older to move down here and um, just have family daycare and I only retired from there at Christmas time.
16: This is Frances Ashland, someone who's been helping raise the children of Bruny Island in southern Tasmania for the past three decades. During that time, Frances and her husband John have also raised a menagerie of farm animals. <laughs> children sized
15: animals and children just go together I mean you know if you want to settle a child or anything take them out with the animals and they're fine some are really scared and they won't go near them but then after a, after a while they settle down and they start uh, patting the animal I have lots lots of little ones come here and wouldn't even go near them they actually grab your leg and shake but you know by the end of the few months or so they're used to them and they're going up and cuddling them
16: and having a miniature animal is, I guess, more child-friendly?
15: Yes, much more. Uh, they don't get frightened of them so much and, you know, they, they gradually accept the bigger ones later on. But uh, starting off with the small ones, it's not quite as intimidating.
16: G'day, I'm David Barnock-Clement. I'm visiting Francis and John's farm on Bruny Island, where the livestock is on the smaller side. They've got pygmy goats, miniature donkeys and cows that stand not much higher than your knee. John says it's taken years of careful breeding to produce these pint-sized farm animals. Yeah, we've uh, just sort of experimented with
17: them, different sized animals. Picked out the smaller ones sort of thing and bred with them and
16: yeah. Have any of you got like a background in animal husbandry? This seems like quite a feat that you've, you've done that. Cow over there is tiny. Yeah,
17: no, we've just done our own thing and... Made a few uh, errors here and there, but yeah, it's worked out pretty well, yeah. We've got quite a few nice little animals now, and people seem to enjoy them very much.
16: And Francis, what type of animals have we got here? Can you kind of give me a bit of a list?
15: We've got Galloway cattle, Irish donkeys, American miniature Mediterranean donkeys, and then I've got, what else have we got? We've got goats. We've started off with Australian miniatures, and we bred down with African pygmy goats, so now we've got a heap of little African pygmy goats that we're <laughs> working with. <laughs> um, what else we've we got? We've got some birds. We've got little miniature pigs.
16: So, breeding them down, obviously it changes the size, but John, does it also change the character of the animal? Do they behave a bit differently?
17: They seem to behave better, actually. They, uh, once you've sort of got Get them tamed down. Anybody can walk up and pat the cows or the donkeys. Donkeys are very friendly.
15: Donkeys are the easiest to calm down because all our girls, you know, and that, they are all been really tamed to start with.
16: <laughs> so, so this little... It's a it's young girl that we've got in front she's of us, this little, little cow girl here. And
15: she's a um, and she's a white Galloway. Mm.
16: Now, she's got a halter on, and you said before you were trying to train her up so yes, that she's better yes, with kids. It takes yes. a while to get an animal good with kids, does yes, it? Yes,
15: it does, especially if you. I like to leave them on the mother's until they're ready to wean rather than take them off some people, put them on the bottles, which is also good. So we just, you know, have them around and pat them and give them some treats and things and just teach them to lead and on a tether and that, and then they sort of start to come around. It's just really brushing them and cuddling them and talking to them. And they usually come around pretty quick.
16: Actually, because it's radio, can you give me a description, looking at the cow in front of us, what are the sizes are we talking about? When we talk about a miniature cow, how miniature is that?
17: Yeah, well, she's nine months old and she's probably just above my knees, <laughs> Between my knees and my waistline, so she's pretty small, yeah.
15: Anything under, like for a cow, is under 42 inches, but ours are down round, round about the 38. Um, anything under 36 is called micro. I'm not sure whether we'll go that far yet or not, depending on what they look like.
16: And, John, we're right on the main road here on the south island of Bruni. Is this a popular site? Do you get lots of people coming in?
17: This Yes, this is very central to Bruni Island here. Any direction you get travel in takes you about 20 minutes to get to the, the coast or less. Uh, so it's very central and there's a lot of traffic goes past here, like heading down towards the lighthouse and all those sort of places, cloudy bay and so forth.
15: But so we were, before um, COVID came, well, um, we were having people stop and, you know, all around our fences and some people would even climb in and come over and have their photos taken with our animals, which was a bit scary at times. That's what's really started us off, sort of thinking, oh, well, we're open to the public. There seems to be a lot of interest in after going through council and confusing them because they didn't know which way to go send us. So um, two years later, we've got the approval and we opened up in March.
16: Right yeah. when right when COVID is in the thick of it. <laughs> yeah.
15: so we thought, oh, we'll give up, you know, we won't keep going because, you know, it's going to be, it's not going to work. But then I thought, oh, well, just keep going now. We're halfway through the approval process. So
17: Any regrets? No. <laughs> no, the weather to hold up at the moment, our tracks and so forth, are fairly new. premature and need to put more gravel down and bit more drainage work that to do and had a lot of rain lately and it hasn't helped us much.
15: But all the
17: children that come love the mud anyhow. So yeah, we <laughs> it's do great. supply a few gum boots to some of them and warn parents to have pretty good footwear if they can. Mm. Yeah.
4: In regional communities across Australia, show day is an annual highlight. A chance to ride a Dodgeham car, buy show bags or eat a Dagwood dog. When the show rolls into town, it's thanks to an army of show workers who spend months of the year living out of caravans, taking their amusement rides and food stores from town to town. Many of the workers behind the show are continuing long family traditions of traveling the country, following the show circuit. Jesse McDonald is one of them.
18: I'm fifth generation show person. So we've been going back to about 1917. So it was horse and cart days back and then, no electricity and kerosene lamps. And it would have been a mighty old track coming up North Queensland, you know, with a horse and cart. And then we moved on to the railway lines and now we're a bit more civilized. We've got trucks and everything. Hi, I'm Phil
4: Brandell. I've caught up with Jesse McDonald here at the Cannes Show in far North Queensland. While being on the road for months at a time, living out of a caravan, may seem like hard work, Jesse loves it and says it's more than just a job.
18: It's a lifestyle. You love it. You're, like, you're sort of born into the business. Um, we sort of follow the sun. You know, we're up in North Queensland in the winter. In the summer, we move south. You know, based in Brisbane, but we're sort of everywhere in between. You know, life on the road. We've got a house in Brisbane and we're there as much as we can be. When we're not there, you know, we've got our home on wheels. We pack it up, hook it on, travel to the next town, and and put a whole show on. How many months a year or weeks in the year
4: would you be on the road traveling?
18: Every family is different, you know. We're all independently owned businesses. Myself, I'm about nine or ten months on the year traveling around. Some people they're eleven months a year. You now some people twelve months a year. So it's a little bit different for everybody. But so if you're spending a uh, ten months on the road, uh, you said you got a home in Brisbane. Do you miss the home? You do. You do. You get. But you sort of grew up in a caravan, so. Our caravans are like apartments. You've got all the luxuries that you'd have in a house. So it's not like people think, "Oh, how do you live like that?" But they're so comfortable. What we're living in now, you do. You sort of. I was in the house for a while, and then uh, we missed the caravan because it's, you know, it's a nice little, uh, nice little home on wheels.
4: Where we're recording this at the moment, it's almost like a mini city that I didn't realise existed at a show. Like we're behind all the main roads, and I guess sideshow alley um, in this little cordoned-off section, and it is a decent sized caravan park how many people like travel roughly each year to get to like a show like the can show
18: i I think there'd be about 400 show people here included with our workers be you know over 200 show people and then we've got some of our staff that travel with us but it takes a lot of people to make it happen and behind the scenes you say there's a 100 caravans here like the whole city and caravan park here just to make what people don't see happen out in the front and centre in where all the, you know, the action's happening on show day.
4: You've got three children. Are you hoping that they follow in the footsteps and keep the family tradition going?
18: Of course you'd like to see it keep going. As me being fifth generation, you'd like to see you know, the tradition to still be there for another 100 years. But with university come along and the kids will have a lot of options. You now. They might decide to be a doctor instead, which how could you blame them?
4: Jamie Pickett is a third generation showman who now runs some of the biggest rides on the show circuit in Australia.
19: So in the school holidays we'd come out and work with the folks, um, so it's a family business and then um, when I left I sort of uh, started off with one of the sideshow games, you know you sort of build a business slowly over years. and. Um, Here I am, you know, uh, at the Cairns show presenting some of the better rides that are available this year. Now, you said your family was doing this beforehand. How far back does your family go into shows? My grandfather used to supply, you know, soft toys to some of the show people. And then uh, he built some uh, kids rides and he he had them out at uh, Churnside Shopping Centre and uh, just found the the love of sort of the amusement industry from that uh, very young age. Why do you do it? Why do you still do it? Oh, I think in the beginning, you sort of you follow on what your family do and you sort of, you know, we worked fairly hard when we were young kids and um, we were showing how to work hard and how to sort of earn a living. And, uh, you know, so you kind of follow on in their footsteps. It's sort of very much like the farmers. You know, you, know, you see a lot of farmers, they sort of take over the folks' farm and um, I absolutely love it. I think, um, you know, here I am in the middle of winter, I'm from Victoria, and um, I'm uh, able to come up and enjoy some of the, the best weather uh, Cairns has to offer uh, when it's, um, you know, I think it was one degrees in Melbourne yesterday.
4: What's it like living on the road out of a caravan for such a long period of the year?
19: Oh look, it can be difficult. Um, my my kids are sort of a little bit older, so they uh, they they go to boarding school and uh, at the moment we're in the school holiday, so we're all crammed into one little van, and it's quite cosy. But, you know, it's, uh, it, ha- it has its advantages. You know, like here we are, like I said before, we're sort of in some of the nicest place- places Australia has to offer. So you got a bunch of rides here. So tell me about your rides. Uh, we're sitting in front of the Beast. So this is the biggest uh, pendulum ride in Australia. It swings 45 metres into the air. The G-force is uh, through the middle of this ride. It's, uh, they're pulling like three Gs, so pushing you down into the, uh, into the seat. So it's It's it's, it's a really sort of intense sort of a ride. But then when it gets to the top, it gives you a, a sense of weightlessness. So, you know, it's actually quite a nice ride to ride.
1: That was Jamie Pickett, a third-generation showman. He was speaking to reporter Phil Brandle at the Cairns Show in far north Queensland, where he was operating some of his amusement rides. Before that, we heard from Francis and John Ashland, who run a miniature animal farm on Tassie's Bruny Island. You can see more on that story, including photos of some of their very cute, very tiny livestock. Head to the RN homepage and look for Country Breakfast under the program's tab. Stick around because just ahead we'll be looking at the trends in beef consumption here in Australia and while the changes there are driven by concerns around health, animal welfare and climate change, the way people are styling and decorating their homes is creating a small but encouraging uptick in demand for
20: cotton. This whole trend towards um, a natural looking home has become very popular as well so cotton's working well for people in their home and when it's cotton season that's when people come out and most certainly ask for it so I think it is a trend that will continue with along with the dried flower trend which is a very big sort of trend right now and sort of cotton's a part of that.
1: More on that just ahead. A couple of years ago, a new floral trend emerged. Using cotton stems as floral arrangement in the home was all the rage. Like most trends, it was assumed to have come and gone. But this year, it looks to have re-emerged once again. Lucy Cooper filed this report.
21: In the past 12 months, Australians have found themselves at home more than ever before. All this time spent in our living rooms has seen a new trend emerged. A natural Australian-looking home. Think dried flowers and eucalyptus-scented candles. And on the back of this trend, florist Cherie Zimmerley says cotton in its natural looking form is back and stronger than
6: ever.
20: They've become very popular over the last couple of years. Um, More and more people are wanting sort of dried elements that they can keep in their home that aren't sort of going to pass away like a fresh flower would. Um, And just this whole trend towards um, a natural looking home has become very popular as well. So cotton's working well for people in their home. And when it's cotton season, that's when people come out and most certainly ask for it. So I think it is a trend that will continue um, with the, along with the dried flower trend, which is a very big sort of trend right now and sort of cotton's a part of that.
21: CEO of Cotton Australia, Adam Kay, agrees and believes that consumers are turning to the plant because of its desirable characteristics.
10: It's a trend that is seeing people, uh, you know, want to move and and display natural fibre and uh, the cotton plant is, you know, is magnificent. It's a natural fibre, it's long lasting and uh, and people are, are purchasing it because it does make a beautiful, beautiful
18: display.
21: For some, the natural appearance of cotton just isn't good enough And so
20: florists are actually modifying the plant based on consumer preference. Some clients like it in its raw state, looking very, very natural. Others really want the cotton to be, look like perfect little cotton balls with no sort of debris or anything on it. So sometimes it's quite labour intensive to go through each bud, make sure there's no sort of little bits of leaves or something left behind and to reposition it back in its pod, you know, perhaps gluing it back in its pod or something to get that perfect look. So it really does depend on the client but um, sometimes it can be quite sort of labour intensive making it perfect. Some people want it perfect.
21: Generally cotton farmers will only get a couple of cents per plant but along at the florist consumers are paying upwards of $20 a stem which is an incredible markup but these impressive sales in urban centres are just a tiny drop in the ocean that is Australian cotton production.
10: The the numbers that are being sold are tiny and You know, when you think that there would be 100,000 plants in a hectare, it's probably about one hectare's worth of cotton that's being sold around the nation. So, uh, yeah, it's hardly diversification, but it's wonderful to see it uh, out there, uh, you know, letting people see how beautiful our natural fibre is.
1: Adam Kay is the CEO of Cotton Australia. While the beef industry has been working on its sustainability and animal welfare image, has it done enough to recognize our First Nations people? One well-known organic beef exporter with properties that touch the Simpson Desert has been addressing just that. Madeline McCosker reports.
5: Obi Organics proudly grows beef cattle on some of the most spectacular desert and channel country landscapes in far southwest Queensland and over the border in the very top of South Australia. Managing Director Deline Ray says despite the company's close association to the land, it actually has no Indigenous employees, but it's addressing that and has been working towards its very own Reconciliation Action Plan.
6: We've been um, producing certified organic beef from the pure heart of Australia for over 25 years and there are many traditional owners in the pure heart of Australia. In fact, I grew up in Birdsville in Western Queensland, the home of the Wunkanguru Yavyandi people. And I think what's really important as as a business like ours that sources cattle from, from Australia is that we recognise the traditional owners, but more importantly is that we celebrate their important connection to country. And what we have realised in more recent times is that consumers in places like North America are really interested in the Indigenous connection to country and what businesses like ours are doing to promote uh, their interests and also recognise that they have an important role to play in agriculture in Australia. We have a reconciliation action plan committee and it probably wouldn't pass mustard if we didn't have any Indigenous people on that committee and we've we have two Indigenous stakeholders that are on that committee.
5: While the Reconciliation Action Plan provides a social licence to the company, Mrs Ray says it's also been a factor in saving major business deals for them. More specifically, it's been credited as being the sole factor in saving a $1 million contract with a US retailer.
6: In the US, we had an example where we were selling to a retailer in California and the retailer changed over there their management and so there was a new president that came in and he was very supportive of American beef producers and he went to the meat manager and he said to the meat manager it's good to see that you've been buying this great beef from Australia but I would prefer that we support American organic beef farmers so if you can please give OB some notice let them know that we won't be buying their beef anymore and we'll be prioritising purchases from American organic beef farmers. This was very distressing for us to hear with just three months notice. And so one of our team actually flew over to meet with the president to try and convince them to change their mind. And my colleague was able to share a lot of the, the work that we're doing through social good. And, and that stretches from mental health to blood donation to even, um, he started to talk about a reconciliation action plan. And, and this president was was intrigued and wanted to know more and asked Andrew for more information. And he was so impressed by the fact that we were the only beef company in the world that he was aware of that had a reconciliation action plan, that he decided that he was happy to keep our beef in his retail outlets instead of replacing us with, with American domestic organic beef. I think uh, So that's a lovely example where Australian exporters and Australian producers shouldn't underestimate the beautiful, clean, green grasses that our cattle graze on, but there's so many other unique selling points that we have that are underutilised in Australia, and our connection to country and our Indigenous history is probably one of the areas that is under-recognised by Australian exporters. There's more that can be done in this space and it's very important from a social good point of view, but it's also um, really sets you up for success in
5: some of these export markets. Since the company began its wrap, it's been working with two Indigenous women who sit on their Reconciliation Action Plan working group to ensure the business is inclusive of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices. Amy Brooks is a proud descendant of the Woolly Woolly people and sits on OB's Reconciliation Action Plan Committee. She says despite OB currently having no staff who identify as Indigenous or Torres Strait Islander, they are doing great work to ensure First Nations voices are heard and respected in the business. As an Indigenous person, I'm very specific in
22: making sure that this journey is in line with what? I believe personally would be something that I would want to see as an Indigenous person within Australia and as an Indigenous person um, in general in terms of holding accountabilities. And so they have been extremely accountable in their deliverables. 100% they're leading the way in industry um, in creating these uh, for diversity and these reconciliation action plans and creating awareness um, and embracing Indigenous Australia and they're actually having the conversation and that is to be highly commended. Interestingly, recently, for example, the um, statistics on Indigenous representation in our industry um, has fallen significantly over the last two years. Um, And so part of the beauty of the Reconciliation Action Plans is also just to identify for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that, you know, this organisation – Is, has a reconciliation action plan. It makes them feel welcome. It makes them feel like, you know, they can see that this organization is actually representing some of their greater interests as well.
1: Amy Brooks sits on the OBE Organic Reconciliation Action Plan Committee. She was speaking to Madeline McCosker. Reconciliation Australia says RAPs are a useful and accessible starting point for organisations to consider and address inequality. In a statement to the ABC, a spokesperson said, in agriculture there's opportunities to address workplace shortages in rural and regional communities by making use of First Nations people as well as joint ventures with Indigenous businesses and using traditional practices to improve productivity. Finally today, grain-fed demand for Australian beef has been steadily increasing for years, with now 50% of beef production on feed. But domestically, what's our appetite for grain-fed compared to grass-fed? Lucy Cooper took a look.
21: When you head along to the butcher, do you have a preference on the meat you consume? Do you care if it's grass-fed or grain-fed? Well, senior animal proteins analysis with Bank, Angus Goodley-Baird, says data shows a gradual reduction in domestic consumption of grain-fed beef. He says, of course, seasonal fluctuations are a part of the story.
10: So we've seen a growth in grain-fed beef production. While there has been good domestic uh, grain-fed beef consumption, a lot of the growth that we're actually seeing is in those overseas markets. So, you know, the traditional markets like Japan and South Korea are big grain-fed markets, but we're also seeing growth into that Chinese market. We're now seeing much more focused grain-fed um programs being implemented, longer programs being implemented uh, beyond your sort of domestic trade 70, 80 day feeders into the 250, 300 plus, obviously in that wakey space as well.
21: Is there any chance that you're able to put a value on changes in domestic demand and consumption?
10: On average, about 60% of our grain feed production was consumed domestically back in 2015. Uh, if we're looking at that number for 2020, it's about 55. 5%. So it's not huge differences, but we can see that there is a gradual trend in that grain-fed beef production system to, to to utilise the growth in the export market effectively.
21: And so does that mean in turn that consumers are turning their preference to grass-fed beef?
10: Not necessarily, no. And, and again, I'm, I'm I just picked those two years and we've got to be cognizant of the fact that 2020 was a better seasonal year as well. So uh, we're obviously going to have more product turned off grass as a result of um, better seasonal conditions. If you can get the product off grass, it's going to be a cheaper product. So um, a lot of those domestic retailers will utilize grass-fed beef if it is available and then top it up with the grain-fed component. But there, there is that specialist segment of the market that are selling it as a grain-fed product, whether it's in a high-end restaurant or particular product in supermarket chains and that volume is probably staying relatively consistent.
21: Are we going to be seeing a greater focus on sustainability, and possibly then consumers turning to grass-fed if they have that view that it is a more sustainable industry?
10: Uh, that's a, a it's a very interesting question, and uh, and and one I think that you know you, you almost need a, a a psychology degree to understand how that consumer might interpret the different um, uh, attributes of the product that is available to them. I know there is research that shows that per kilogram of weight produced, the feedlot is a more efficient way of doing it from a sustainability point of view. So while people might view cattle in a feedlot as being not sustainable, it's actually producing meat faster. So therefore, there are less emissions associated with that meat. I'd like to think as an industry that, you know, we can continue to promote the quality of the product that is out there and that all across the industry, every industry is working towards uh, improving their position from a sustainability point of view. Um, But I think it's about how you actually inform the consumer as to the achievements you're making along the way to actually improve your position.
21: Angus Gidley-Baird, Senior Animal Proteins Analysist with Rabobank. Upon entering Keenan Miller's business, it looks like any other butcher – That is until you pay attention to the product labels. Phrases such as nitrate-free, grass-fed, preservative-free and certified free range jump out at you which Keenan says is a reflection of a significant shift he has witnessed in the meat industry.
2: Yeah, well, people steer from their traditional cuts now and they're going for more natural products, which is predominantly grass-fed lines. Uh, things that are, you know, in the free air, they're not locked up and confined in feedlots and things like that. They're out in the open paddocks and they have access to, gr- uh, to grass and, and all that. Yeah, people seem to really like that sort of things.
21: Do you ensure, with some of those products, that they're under any um, scheme or they're certified at all?
2: Yeah, a lot of... the Some farms we use come from Tasmania, and they're they're definitely certified, yeah. They're sort of bigger companies, but they're 100%, well, they claim 100% grass-fed and and certified and all that. So, same with their pork as well. Pork's not grass-fed, obviously, but it's um, certified, free-range, it's humanely um, grown and all that as well.
21: So, why are consumers starting to potentially move away from grain-fed? I hit the streets of Toowoomba to get to the bottom
3: of it. Uh, My father has a farm. He has uh, Hereford cattle and he grass feeds them and I I just prefer that myself. I don't really like the marbled sort of type of
7: meat. Personally, I feel it's nicer on the cattle and they just have a bit more freedom and I'm not really big on feedlots, but I know that that's where a lot of cattle go to. An increased
21: price is no deterrent for Lisa, who grew up on a feedlot herself but now prefers grass-fed meat. I'm happy to pay a little bit more if it's coming from a locally sourced farm that's so supporting local business as well. Meanwhile, butcher Ted Ellison only sells pasture-raised meat at his Toowoomba butcher shop. He says his customers have been happy to absorb rising meat prices, but says he would dearly love to see them level out. So not to see customers priced out of the market.
13: I haven't seen it like this for the 20 years I've been butchering. I started in Blackwell and then um, how much it's changed. But in the last five years, yes, all the prices are across all species are pretty strong at the moment. Um, For sustainability, it's not really there for the long term. Uh, I can't see it continuing. Well, it will continue in all um, fairness. A lot of prices have never come down too much, but for sustainability for Queensland, Royal and, and our consumers, yeah, it needs to level out a little bit. We're across all species.
21: Are you seeing consumers are struggling to navigate those high prices and actually afford to purchase these products?
13: Yeah, the navigation's a funny thing to watch um, across the customer base. It's generally not the um, the price that pulls them up. It's it's the quality and but the price is very conscious on my side of it because I want to supply a product that's good and sustainable for them. For the price side of it, they will purchase it because they're conscious of what they want to eat. Um, and what, where it comes from and how it's, how it's done. So yeah, it, it's a fun one to navigate. Certainly just the percentages has got to be there and for us to sustain and be here for a longer term. But yeah, not taking advantage of it, of course.
1: Ted Ellison is a local Toowoomba butcher. And my name's Clint Jasper. Thanks for listening to Country Breakfast this week. Thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McAloon and Tim Simons for their help with this week's show. Stick around because just like Ted the Butcher's shop window, RN's Saturday morning lineup is the highest quality at the best price and you can consume as much as you want. What a deal.